Just a reminder that the Missing Witches podcast is entirely listener-funded. If you love the project and want to support us and join in on conversations like this one live, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash missingwitches. You aren't being a proper woman, therefore you must be a witch. You must be a witch. Hello again to the Missing Witches Coven. Thank you for joining us on this Lamas celebration, question mark. Um, Maybe a celebration of righteous anger, we can call it, but it will definitely be a celebration of the protection that we require of each other and that we are able to give to one another when we are in circle, whether these circles are in person as they are in this moment, or the larger circle that we create in with our lives, with the spell that is our lives. I want to invoke Dr. Beverly Smith, who once told me that a conversation can be a protection spell. And that is all I want out of this. Um, We are in fear and we are operating from a place of fear and that's not what witches are into. (laughs) Witches are into facing the dark um, and sometimes the dark is just a little too much. And at those times, those are the best times to gather in circle, to support one another, to ask hard questions, to give hard answers. But ultimately, as I said, we want to thank Dr. Beverly for reminding us that a conversation can be a protection spell. We want to thank so much our guests who are with us in circle today. I want to start with Twyla, who could not be here. Twyla and I were in talks since early spring that she would be here. And unfortunately, she is currently in this moment at the hospital with a family member. So Twyla, may this conversation of protection extend to you and your family as well. But here with us today, we have Mackenzie Nee Flynn, who is a clinical herbalist, a full spectrum doula, a street medic, the co-founder of Black Thistle Street Aid. We're going to hear all about it. And also with us today is Ilosa Olaomi Akalatunde. She's an author, an educator, a priestess, and perhaps better known to some or most of you as Got to Be Oshun. Thank you so much for being with us. I want to turn my attention to Risa first and ask if you can help us to kick off this spell of protection for Lamastad, this first harvest. Thank you for being here. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, witches. As usual, when our hearts are broken and we come together enraged, um, there's such a gift in seeing each other's faces, even if our faces are pissed and exhausted and sick, even if we carry the weight of a medical system that doesn't recognize our right to joy and pleasure, let alone our body autonomy. Even if we exist in places where it's not safe to be who we are, even if our ancestors and our parents have still and constantly struggled for their body autonomy to be recognized. Even if we carry all of this, uh, 
this is a season for me where I feel so on the tipping point. I know it doesn't feel like that where most of you are. I know it's heat wave and the climate is fucking collapsing, but where I am, some of the leaves are turning red, if you can believe it. Where I am, it was cold today, the heat broke. Um, I had the first taste of fall and I am always at Lavis Tide reminded that things turn again. And there's vines deep in the woods. There's vines climbing over everything. I can see the mountain is thick with them. And those vines are holding us. They really are. They have held us for centuries. They have reached out across when we've been alone. Some of those vines have helped us control our cycles. For those of us who can get pregnant, have helped us keep our fucking bodies to ourselves when we did not want to be pregnant. Um, some of those vines, like the raspberry vines climbing up the bush, have helped us be ready to be pregnant. You know, these these plants have been with us. And so at Lamas, when we are in this circle, this conversation that is a spell of protection, I call in all the plants that are around you in the cracks in the pavement outside your door. All of those plants are with us in this moment of owning our right to our joy and our pleasure and our autonomy. Hello, Omi. I want to start with you. Um, reaction video sounds trite, but <laughs> you did a, a reaction video when the overturning of Roe v. Wade happened. Um, if, if you're here today, you can go on YouTube and find that. It's Black Witch's reaction to overturning Roe v. Wade. If you're listening to the recorded version of this, I'll put it in the show notes because it really was angry, but with some shit productive. And this is, this is always my issue with my anger is that I can't always seem to channel it into something productive. So again, hello, me, I want to turn to you and quote you. You were talking about our organs. You said, they belong to us. They are ours. We are in control. Can you please expand? Well, greetings, first of all, to all. Blessed Lamas to one and all. We are always blessed to be on Earth Mother Onile as she moves through the seasons right now. So it's a blessing regardless, right? It's a blessing regardless. Um, I think that there has always been since the overturning of the matriarchies, a clash, right? And there were clashes before, right? Human beings clash. Let's just say that's a thing that happens. However, living in a male-dominated society, there is always a clash. And it generally seems as though it's created and generated to keep us in a state of terror. So for those of us who have lived in marginalized bodies, and that's everybody here, right? I don't see anyone here that is exempt from that. Then we know that we have been raised and socialized to believe that our bodies are a means of production. Every marginalized body is only seen as useful when it is performing or when it is producing, right? For queer people, if they're performing, then they're useful. For black and brown people and people who are considered to be women or people in femme presenting bodies, they are useful when they are uh, producing. So we have been taught and socialized to believe that our bodies are not ours. In that state, 
when we hear someone telling us you will have children whether you want to or not it automatically kicks us into a state of fear adrenaline magic is what you work when you're in fight flight or freeze and that's short-lived deep-seated changing magic magic that changes the trajectory of life you have to be in your body to do it so when i saw this being overturned and i mean of course i wept it, it was a right that my mother had i never considered truly to be honest that i would ever not have it i've given birth to daughters i've also given birth to gender fluid people who have uteruses i never considered that this was something that someone was going to take away so it, i cried i wept i was i was trying to understand but i also remembered that we have to stay in our bodies to stay in your body you take ownership of it regardless of what an agency says this belongs to you don't ever forget it don't ever act as though it's not true this belongs to you so what you want it to do then that's what you make a way for it to do what you don't want it to do then you make a way for it not to do this right and we will have to hearken in this time to the wisdom of of our grandmothers and to the wisdom of our past you know the past people in our lives who had uteruses and these types of things were forced upon them we will hearken unto that and their memories will let us know that this body is yours regardless of how someone tries to enslave it regardless of how someone tries to force their reproductive beliefs onto it this body is yours let the lives of your ancestors be proof of that you know their bodies were theirs because we're here today right we're here today and so you have to sit in that and not sit in that fear the terror to me is their main tool and has always been the main tool of this particular regime and this particular agenda that we're now living under is that terror so we especially as witches especially as those who understand the ancient ways especially as those who talk to the flowers and the sun and the moon we have got to come outside of allowing that terror to move us at all right cry moan weep go outside and break some shit do whatever you need to do but then come on up out of that terror mode we can't fix nothing in that and we can't unite in that and we can't sit here as a coven in that terror mode and get shit done and if nothing else we know it's time to get shit done as a collective yes i think we're all going to be rubbing our necks tonight from the furious nodding <laughs> i think there's going to be a lot of that i really just want to repeat this we have to stay in our bodies and I know that for me in my life, some of the worst moments have felt like out-of-body experiences. Like I remember being on my way home from a particularly traumatic day and being on my way home and saying, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. I just want to go home. And, and I was on my way to my house, but I, I don't think I was necessarily talking about my house. And... I'd never really thought about it until you said, Olomi, we have to stay in our bodies. 
because we have to, as in, we don't really have much of a choice, <laughs> you know, either, either we're, we're in our body or we're not on this earth anymore, you know, or we've become soil maybe. Um, but we also, also like as a, as a choice, as a mental, as a psychological, as a spiritual tool to stay in our bodies. I love that. I'm putting that in my pocket to stay, to stay in my own body. I want to turn to Mackenzie. Can you tell us a little bit about your practice and how staying in your body has facilitated that practice? Oh my goodness. Well, first I wanna say, I'm gonna take away the phrase adrenaline magic. That's what resonates with me, right? That's that magic that like lifts the car off your baby or, you know, like, kicks you into gear and it is not the same magic that we have to shift into to do that deep marathon lifelong work right the like and something that I think um that brings up for me a lot is like that is also the concept of individualism that comes up a lot when we start having these conversations about movement spaces and unpacking our whiteness and urgency 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 which is a tactic to keep us burnt out and keep us chronically in response mode, keep us chronically in that adrenaline magic so that we're fucking exhausted and out of our bodies and not in our true seat of power. Yeah, body work is embodiment, re-embodiment magic is definitely a, still an ongoing journey for me. I mean, me, uh, myself as a femme presenting person, um, you know, was chronically traumatized over and over again as especially and especially as I interacted with our healthcare system, our quote unquote, so-called healthcare system in the quote unquote, so-called United States. And I think that the reclaiming of our bodily, our autonomy, the reclaiming of our embodiment, the reclaiming of our sovereignty, I think something that I often unpack with especially new people coming in to this work or being radicalized right at this moment is the fact that you cannot separate the conversation around abortion from the conversation of the ways that what we call healthcare in the United States does not believe in our bodily autonomy. It does not be actually believe in our personhood. Um, I know that we're, we already wanna have a conversation about the ways that our myriad healthcare system was founded but when you start, when you start unpacking the ways that, uh, when you start unpacking the concept that abortion is healthcare and that you have sovereignty over your own body, then you have to go, it's a deep rabbit hole that you fall down in talking about how that intersects with what we call the practice of medicine in the United States. And by that, I don't necessarily, and by that, I mean both the heroic system that is currently legalized and the healing that has been illegalized or outlawed through practitioners like myself, practitioners like Alomi, the many, many community wise ones that we all still have that are not allowed to be out and to talk about what they do or you know, are, are just doing their, their granny healer thing. When they came for those people all the way back and back and back, they 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 instituted those tenants the tenants of capitalism upon our bodies like Alomi was just talking about that we are 
we are modes of production rather than our own sweet sovereign selves. So one way that I return to my body is by like fucking learning from radical folks about like how that happened and like how even the fuck did that happen? And, um, and what are the tactics that have been done to reclaim that for ourselves? And what can I do? And focusing always as I re-embody myself, always on the long road of what does this look like resisting not that we shouldn't show up and like light shit on fire or whatever like individually not that we shouldn't not that we shouldn't show up and lift the car off our sisters as like they are being like deliberately oppressed not that we shouldn't do that but to remember to check myself in and out of adrenaline magic and to learn from the ancestral techniques of fighting this thing all the way back and back and back. I'm talking all the way back to the witch hunts. I'm talking all the way back. Like this magic has been, we are part of a, a history that is so long that it cannot even be told. That resistance magic is a tide and what we are fighting is also magic. What we are fighting is also a glamor cast over us. Right, it's a, I, I think it wasn't that long ago you guys had you guys had a, I was another panel and I forget who said it and I feel bad that I don't remember their name, but they talked about white supremacy and colonialism as a curse. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we, we, we remember always to plant the seed. We remember always to cut the cord. We remember always to light the candle, right? To recognize that what we are fighting is also magic and that we're part of the, 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 the always rising tide against it. Yes, I think that, um, and we'll talk more about this, but we can probably safely call this a war on women, a war on femme, um, but we can also call this class warfare because we know that the wealthy and the privileged will not have to live under the same rules and regulations that we do, that there will always be ways around if you have enough resources if you have enough money there's a great piece um called the only moral abortion is my abortion um is anyone familiar with this it was compiled by joyce arthur and she worked in clinic and compiled these stories of femmes women pregnant people moving from the protest line in front of the clinic into the clinic to have their abortion and then going straight back out to the picket line. <sighs> There's a question in there somewhere for both of you. <laughs> I'm not well, I'll let Risa ask the question. <laughs> I want to go I want to go from there back to this question of activist history you know we look at activist history in canada for example there's this where we live there's a specific history right of all women in church basements being like you know what we need is a fucking right to health care like we have a right we have a right to health care and that is the same law now that protects our right to abortion is it challenged here yes do we all suffer from the bullshit of capitalism, karyarchy of patriarchy, yes. But right now, our right 
to abortion is simply encoded within our right to health care, as far as I understand, and I'm not a fucking legal scholar. But so when you talk about that, I would love, Mackenzie, for you to go back to this, this, this digging into your history and your current work. We look at like how this idea of individualism, this loneliness is really a lie. It's a glamour that breaks us from this fundamental right that we can believe in when we're in our bodies, that we have a right to care. Yeah, I mean, that it's so long, right? I mean, we were just, you know, someone was talking about, you know, the traditions in Babylon earlier, but like before we were talking, like, but I think the name that always gets brought up when we start talking about it is always the Jane Collective, right? And the Jane Collective we start with was only in the 60s. Like they were, I love them. They were complicated and they also did good work and they reclaimed the ability of lay people to do collectivist abortion work at a very important time and also this work is as long as there has ever been laws um as long as there there have ever been pregnant people on this planet so i mean the activism itself that we could talk about goes all the way back to the again the witch trials back in the early back in the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, back to the times when midwifery was coming under attack and the foundational, like the quote unquote founding of, of what is so-called obstetrics and gynecology. But even before then, like in the modernized era, um, one of the reasons why I reached out because I recently learned about a, about a person in my own home area in Portland, Oregon, who practiced for 30 some odd years from 1920 all the way up to just a few years before Roe was even was passed and she was a lay person um, named Ruth Barnett who was trained with physicians and then provided like never lost a person over that time period like when we talk about the activism specifically around abortion and abortion provision and we intersect that with healthcare there becomes this narrative that before there were physicians doing it, it was deadly. Everything was deadly. It is a true narrative. It is a true narrative that illegality of abortion increases the number of deaths. What the combination of illegality and white supremacy and patriarchy does is it creates isolation. They take us away from community. It doesn't matter. It literally does not matter. And there is some hot scholarship coming out about this from uh, someone everyone should follow named Molly Dutton, Molly Dutton Kenny. She's a midwife up in y'all's area um, about home abortion with myriad different methods, including herbal abortion, including medication abortion, including extraction methods. The thing that kills is when we are driven into isolation, when we are taken from our community. So this ties into my thoughts about herbal abortion and my complicated and strong feelings about the outrush of the many beautiful zines that were created uh, in the 60s and onwards, is that if we distribute information about becoming, becoming our own providers, which we have the right to do, we have to first unpack 
our own training that we've been given through the gut of obstetric and gynecology industry of the modern American complex, which tells us that the only way to be safe is to be alone and hidden and away from them. That's not how abortion was ever practiced under any other communal system in our histories and our lineages amongst our grandmothers and our aunties and our great, great, greats and our great and our on the way back. No one was ever hidden and alone, not when they were in, not when they were in a loving system, right? Not, not when, not when we were in all intact and everything was magical, right? That the history of activism is not, the root of it is not even necessarily in reclaiming all of those many different tactics. It is around reclaiming the community that keeps us safe. When these many different heroes that we all idolize or, you know, these different techniques that people get so they get, they get radicalized, they find out about menstrual extraction or they find out about herbs and they are like proselytizing. They're like, everyone should have an abortion this way. And then we all come through that phase of radicalization. <laughs> and we realize that it's so much bigger than that. The work of it is so much bigger than that. So as we come into activism and as we learn about these histories, we have to recognize that it is that it was always collective. It is always community. It is always our, our connection to our ancestors that keeps us in our bodies and keeps us safe. Well, I mean, I don't know if you, I like, I feel like you probably have things to say about this. <laughs> A big old hand clap of praise, of course, and all of the agreement. But yes, we def first of all, we have to remember, as you stated so eloquently, that um, the win has been to divide us, right? That's, that's the victory, as you said, is when they divide us and make us believe that it's just me I'm the only person who doesn't want to have a baby. And so it's sad and it's terrible and I have to do it by myself, right? In this terrible place, because I'm also being punished for liking orgasms, which human beings are supposed to, right? So there's a punishment aspect and that punishment aspect is how they keep us separated and divided and outside of community. But as you stated so beautifully, no reproductive work was done in isolation. What, how, how, how could any of this possibly have been done in isolation? It would not have made any sense and it doesn't work that way. So definitely returning to the community that keeps us safe, returning to the community that heals us, right? The healing is a communal effort. One of the um, sayings of the ancestors in the Yoruba tradition is we must gather together as trees do to form a forest, right? We must gather together. And that they said that the ancestral mothers do not bless us singly. They bless us in groups. And so that's why the trees gather. And that's why we as human beings have to gather as well. So definitely the strength, the power, the ability to move through these different states of being lies in community and reproductive work has always been about moving through different states of being, right? You're a 
You're a vessel. You decide whether or not this is something that you're going to keep. You move into this other state of being to let this thing go, to send this thing on its way. And you come back into this state of being. It's always, reproductive work has always been magical work. It can't be anything else, right? So definitely must be done in community. And as you said, the history has to be put into place has to be put into place. If we, if we don't remember that it was this same fight at the Salem witch trials, right? And this same group of black and brown, femme and, and different and gender fluid people, this was us. It, it was just us then too, right? If we don't remember that we're just time traveling with this shit, right? It, it was us then too. It was this same, it was why we recognize each other. It's why we can have a damn conversation because we talked about this shit before. Right, so now we down here, it's 2022, same goddamn conversation, same goddamn group of people, right? So what we know is what? We won, we know the end, we win, right? We know we win because we're here. So yes, we have to stay connected. We have to understand why it's so important to divide us. And then it's incumbent upon us to not recognize those divisions. Right? When you're amongst witches, you're amongst witches. We don't recognize other divisions. We don't bow to those other divisions because they're pretend. As you stated, they're a damn glamour. It's not real. So we don't recognize that shit. We can look at each other and say, okay, this is my people. If we saw each other out in public, we'd be like, I think that's my people. Right? We would be wondering. I think that might be a, a, my, my, my friend. That might be my person. So we have to stay connected. Completely agree. Yes. And we'll be reminding people that this shit is a glamour. Because sometimes it's the word that you put on it that sticks in the people's mind. Um, One of our favorite theorists, uh, Sylvia Frederici, contends that part of the thrust of the witch hunt was to make us suspect our neighbor to the first point in history where we could look at our next door neighbor and think, can I trust you? I shouldn't trust you. I should be afraid of you. Um, Mackenzie, did you want to say something before I jumped in? Yeah. Well, also, I hope that someday there's an episode on Sylvia Federici or a book club just on Caliban and the Witch because it's like was mind blowing to me. But yes, and I I was just I was rolling with Alomi. I was like yes, and this. Um, uh, also, as we're unpacking, as we unpack the history, particularly of activism, right? We have to continually say the phrase over and over again: that Roe was never enough. Roe was never enough, and Roe was never ever meant to be, at least not on our side, the be all and the end all. The fight is not to attain uh, permission from a system that is genocidal upon us. Yes, Roe gave us access in some really important ways, and there are some people suffering repercussions from it being gone right now that are horrific to my mind. And also, it was never enough. And there was deep division that needed to be undone with, its, with, with the primary activism that went into it, right? White feminist activism. At the same time that it did some things, it had repercussions that it, it actively divided us at the same time, right? As we move forward in this, this, new, this new fight that we're going to be in, healthcare as a human right, tying together the fact that healing 
does not happen within the system that is killing us. That as we reclaim ourselves, we must also reclaim community and that that cannot be done in isolation. It's like, yeah. <laughs> For those of you who are listening and can't see, Mackenzie is doing hand gestures that are both frantic and somehow bringing us together. <laughs> so frantically bringing us together. But I do want to talk about unpacking, unlearning, unschooling. Olomi, I know you wrote a book about raising revolutionaries. So for those of us who do have children or for those of us who are working on our own biases, can you give us some tips for raising ourselves if we're not raising children with this notion of unlearning? Yes. First thing is question everything. Question everything. The second thing, trust what we call in the Yoruba language, your ori. Your ori is your head, your mind, yourself. Trust yourself. And I always say, I teach it in all my classes, believe your eyes. If something looks like bullshit, it's bullshit. If it sounds like bullshit, it's bullshit. Don't let nobody come and then convince you that it's something beautiful. Don't do that. Yourself knows, especially what's best for your destiny. And that's at the root of unlearning, right? Because learning is a way of teaching us to follow the status quo, right? I teach um, Afrofuturism at a university here in Florida, and I love doing it. I love it. I'm so glad, you know, that the mothers put me here. However, I am anti the education system, to be completely honest, because it takes people and its purpose is to make you do things one way, right? I stay in an argument with my director because I'm supposed to be teaching people how to write. What they want me to do is teach people how to write this weird standardized way, which doesn't come naturally to any of us. I'm a writer, I'm a good writer. I'm a, you know, I teach English at a university. So obviously I'm, I can write in the way they want me to write. However, that doesn't come naturally to anyone. So when we think about unlearning, question it all, let it all go as many times as you need to, right? Say fuck it to as much of it as you need to. And whatever pieces are working for you, then you keep those pieces until such time that it's time to let them pieces go too, right? I'm, I'm an old woman. I'm in my crone years, all praises. So happy to be here, would not have it any other way. Hey, go crones, right? And so many times in my life, I've had to let go of a belief. I've had to sit a belief to the side that I was passionate about and that I worked towards. Be willing to let any of that shit go. Hold on to you and that's it, right? So unlearn that way. And anything that keeps you away from other people, other human beings, you really gotta check that out. You really gotta dig deeper into that. Because we were all raised with, in a capitalist society, somebody has to be us, somebody has to be other. So we were all raised with an other in mind, right? So we all, every day, have to say, wait, that's not an other, right? My mother and all of her sisters had eating disorders. And we are already tiny people. I am 5'2", 120 pounds on a good day. We're tiny. Our bodies are made tiny. 
But in our family, because of these eating disorders, there was a whole lot of fat phobia, right? That was just the way of the day. So if you developed a normal natural body, size 14, that's a normal natural body. Don't ever forget it, right? If you developed into that, there was a lot of, you know, backlash that you were going to have to have in my family. And so when I recognized my own eating disorder, you know, shock of all shocks, I, I was I was in my 40s before I could admit and say, wait a minute, I think <laughs> I don't think my relationship with food is correct. Even though I was raised by all these women who I had identified as having them, two of them who died from them. It took me until I was in my 40s to say, wait, I think I'm, I'm you know, dealing with this too. I had to then begin to unpack my own fat phobia. I had to unpack it, right? It was somebody that I was allowed to other. I had always been allowed to other that. I had to then unpack it. So that's what I mean. Anything that you have in your mind that takes you away from other people, you got to check that out. You got to check that out and be like, why, why do I think that? Where, where is that thought coming from? That's not based in reality. So where is it coming from? So unlearn, unlearn for yourself. Now, while you're unlearning, do not judge yourself. That doesn't mean don't change your behavior, but that means don't say ugly stuff to yourself. Are oh, you were so stupid to ever have thought that? Don't do that. Don't do that. Just say, oh, damn, that was fucked up that I was raised that way. I ain't finna do that shit no more. And then just stop doing it. So don't use it as a tool to be mean to yourself again, the way that the people who taught you that shit were mean to you. Don't use it as a tool to re-traumatize yourself. Forgive yourself and be like, oh, damn, that was some dumb shit. Let it go and move on. I we talking about isolation and, and the way you, you spoke about it, allow me, I, I, I feel like, we are in an abusive relationship with our society. And the first thing that you hear in, in domestic violence circles is that that isolation. First, they didn't want me talking to this or that friend. Then, you know, they, they kept me away from my family until all I had was them. And I think we can apply that to the status quo. I'm not getting any nurturing, but at least I know that I am in line with what I was told to do. I think it's a it's a useful metaphor, especially when when you're talking about not reproducing that abuse onto yourself is to recognize that we we are in an abusive relationship with our society. I mean, a statistic that I just learned this year was that the number one cause of death of people who are pregnant is homicide. That being pregnant is dangerous for many reasons out, outside of how it affects the course of our lives. And again, I just keep coming back to this notion of like this war on femme and I, and I just need both of you and all of you and everyone who's listening to tell me like how to keep fighting this, this, war risa has an answer or a follow-up no, no. question <laughs> it's like my question is related because my question is like how do we build community and not make other of the people on the other side of this issue on the other side politically who are also in a domestic violence situation relationship 
with the same political leaders, the same political system. Like, how do we how do we reach those people, even when they're in our own family or in friends' family, where it just seems ludicrous? It just seems. So I wanted to add that part where it's like, can it be can it be something beyond a war? Can there be community building even with them if we see them as in the same violence? Malomi, help us. I think that I always think that they know. They know that they're actually in community with us. And this is the old woman, me speaking. Had you asked me this 20 years ago, I would have been like, no, we can't build no community with their ass. You know, chop them, that's what I would have said. <laughs> but the old woman, me, I'll praise this to her. I'm so glad she's here, has to say they know, right? There is not a femme presenting person. There is not, you know, a person who is living and feeling this pressure on them all the time that doesn't know that the pressure is there. The difference is just that we have said, I ain't finna do that. And they have said, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna acquiesce to it. So we can always have community with them because we remember the times when we acquiesce to it as well, right? We have to acquiesce to it a little bit every day or they ain't gonna let us eat. We ain't gonna eat if we don't acquiesce some a little bit every day. So since we're still all in it, then we are in community with them. I think we have to be careful, right? Because people like that can be dangerous, literally life-threatening. However, I do agree with you. We have to bear in mind that we're one human family trying to move into a better condition. That is literally what is going on. While keeping in mind that people can be wrong. People can have wrong opinions. People can think some wrong shit. People can say some wrong shit. People can enact some wrong shit. They do it all the time, right? And we don't have to, there doesn't necessarily have to be love lost, especially when we're talking about family members. When we talk about family members, we want, we definitely want to hold a space, right? Where we can try to find some sort of reconnection. But I find, what I find is helpful with my siblings and my, you know, older aunties and uncles is reminding them that this is a new world. Right. And we're so grateful for the new world that they tried to build, that they began to build in the 60s. And this is our addition to that. Right. And my children remind me that they're grateful for the new world that we tried to build in the 90s. Right. And this is their addition to that. And somehow that usually helps people to ease more into being accepting of the fact that, you know, nobody's going to roll over and take bullshit forever. Because that's what blows my mind, to be honest is that people think, well, if you're Black, if you're femme presenting, if you're trans, if you're queer, you're going to roll up and take shit forever. It blows my mind that history has been rewritten to make people believe that being these things means that you're just going to take shit. When we, I'm like, these are the people who have been rebelling the whole time. These are the people that have been kicking your ass the whole time. So why do you get to 2022 and decide? If we can beat them down this one last time, they're going to do what we say. That shit is never, we've never done what you say. It's, it's, it's strange to me that they still think this one last, you know, beat down and yeah, finally they'll submit. What? That's always to me the kicker. Like, what the fuck history are you reading? Where you been all these past 3,000 years? Mackenzie, respond. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now it's, I'm adding, I'm going, I'm building, I'm, I'm following along behind it. I'll be like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, uh, yes. And also, I'm from a person, I'm also a person that has a deeply conservative family that grew up in a lot of, that has like a lot of, it's hard to go home and have a conversation that doesn't start some kind of fight. I feel that pain deeply. And I think where I'm at right now is I'm focusing on building. I'm focusing on building that nest within my own community of forming that safe, protective layer around us. Because like, uh, like uh, we just said, those people, those people cross the picket line. Everyone needs abortion. Everyone needs healthcare. Everyone needs healing at some point and they will find you and they will find you and you will welcome them in. You will give them what they need and then they won't be, even if they cross back over the picket line because they believe that they will be cut off from their family if they don't write with like any of those things. When we remove the glamor from ourselves and we're able to see the many intersecting lines that people hold on the other side and we're able to just hold to just see it to just see all those intersecting threads that are attached to them and to say sometimes both right i also still hate you for what you're doing <laughs> i still hate you for what you're doing and if you come to me i and also i'm creating the way for you i'm we're we're making we are making the way forward and it's even for you and you can go back and forth as many times as you need to, honestly. We'll stop you when you come to violence for us. But I think reclaiming those spaces, reclaiming that healing for myself and my community is still the first place that I still the first place that I go. And it's still not a reality for so many of us. Yeah, I think if like you were saying, you know, so, some of us are in environments where it, it's it's not safe for us. Maybe we are too young to move out of our parents' house. Maybe we are not in a financial position to get out of a bad situation. Um, but if it is possible and safe, I would love for this notion of shout your abortion to really come to light. I was talking to my mother, who is a good Christian woman. And therefore, you know, despite being feminist my whole life, um, thinks that abortion is wrong. You know, it's, it's, it's the baby killing equation. But I think part of the reason is that she told me in this conversation, she doesn't think she knows anyone who has had an abortion. And I said, you're wrong. I'm not going to say any more than that but let me just say you are you are very very wrong and i think it's easy for people to think that this is again the only others have abortions only this type of person has an abortion only that type of you know uh, the sluts have abortions you know that that kind of thinking so i think if we can be more vocal about the realities of our lives that we can sort of open up this gate, I will say I, I've never had an abortion. My body doesn't want to make a pregnancy. And, you know, that that's a different kind of body struggle. But I did have a condom break once and I went straight to the pharmacy and I told the pharmacist I, I would like a morning after pill. And they said, 
here you are, madam. And I think it was, you know, $17 or something like that. And um, I took it and then I, I didn't worry so much and it was easy and it was simple and it was safe. And I got it from a healthcare professional who was able to answer my questions about what the side effects might be. So I really, again, if it's safe for you, for those of you who are listening, if you have had this experience in your life, I would love for you to feel like you can be honest about it because I feel like that will change the world. This notion of community is this honesty, is this vulnerability. And I want to go back to Mackenzie quickly because I want to ask you about being a street medic. I want to ask you about this front line of all front lines and first of all, how you got into this field. And secondly, what protection magic do you use on yourself so that you don't burn out? Yeah, it, the story of how I got into this work is actually, you know, I'm just realizing now that I love it because, (laughs) because it's, as I was talking about a, a little bit before, I think that we we get caught in this notion of compartmentalizing. Abortion is separate from maternal fetal medicine. Abortion is separate from obstetrics and gynecology. Abortion is its own particular thing. Harm reduction is its own particular thing. Drug users don't intersect with abortion and they don't intersect with being pregnant. Unhoused people, once they enter into the street, that's all they become. They don't become any other type of demographic. So the story of how I, the first thing, how I very first got into healthcare advocacy was that I was, um, asterisk trigger warning, I was assaulted by a physician as part of my introduction to the gynecologic industry of the United States. I was given a non-consensual pelvic exam that was so painful that I, shook and cried on the table. I was 16 years old. And I never went back to a physician for over a decade. And I started studying how to keep myself healthy. I had already had a lot of, I was very lucky to grow up in a beautiful rural area. So I had a lot of access to green space and plant communications from a very young age um, and had this ancestral memory that plants could heal. So I went to that and that's how I got started in herbalism. So my, the foundation of my work has been in reproductive sovereignty since I was 16 years old, trying to figure out how we remove ourselves from the, I use this word very intentionally, genocidal system that is the obstetrics and gynecologic industry, particularly in the United States. And that is then outsourced to multiple other areas Uh, across the world, particularly the global South. I moved, um, I grew up in Washington state and in a really rural area. And then I moved to Eugene, Oregon about five or six years ago. And Eugene, Oregon has the infamous um, claim to fame that it has the highest per capita rate of houselessness in the entire United States. Little Eugene, Oregon, like disproportionately proportionate to the population. We have the highest concentration, not the highest overall numbers, 
right? That's like New York and LA and things like that, but condensed into this tiny little city of, I don't even know, like, I think it's less than 200,000 people or something like that. We have around 9,000 people living without shelter on the street. Um, and I have been trying to work full-time as a full spectrum doula and a clinical massage therapist and an herbalist. And I've been trying to make it work in the predominantly white, predominantly upper class alternative healing, quote unquote, alternative healing networks. Um, like trying to like do the thing. And when I landed in Eugene, I landed with a group of activists that were providing absolutely free street-based medical care um, called Occupy Medical. And they took me in and they trained me up. And it was the first place that I ever was able to unpack for myself my own intersection with classism around being someone who is driven into healing for myself and then moving into circles where it was totally normal to give someone a, a, a regimen of natural medicine that was like several hundred dollars, right? You need to take all of these supplements and you have to get all these weird, um, not weird, but like very exotic herbs that come from somebody else's culture and blah, 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 blah. And I couldn't make it work. It didn't make sense to me. I hate it. Like I, I wasn't, it wasn't working for me. And I landed in this place where all of the herbs were grown and harvested and the medicine was all made and then we gave it out for free. And it was a fucking revolution for me. I was with them for a couple of years and um, got a lot of got a lot of political education about the intersectionality of houselessness. And it's sort of hard. It's hard not to think when you start looking at houselessness, it's hard not to think that it isn't like the ultimate intersectional, like the ultimate intersection of like disproportionately people of color, disproportionately LGBT, disproportionately youth LGBTQIA folks, and sort of counterintuitively, overwhelmingly male because of the ways that misogyny creates isolation and individualism and forces people out of community. And the just the ways that you don't even conceive that modernity creates barriers for people. Like you just, if you're going, if you're trying to look at how to make things accessible, then you have to talk about people living on the street. If you want to talk about police violence, you have to talk about people living on the street. If you want to talk about the opioid epidemic, if you want to talk about the drug use epidemic, you have to talk about people living on the street. Like it's just like it was it was it really blew my work wide open. It blew my activism wide open. Um, and when the pandemic hit, there, when the pandemic hit, the CDC made open guidance that, that cities were no longer allowed to enact sweeps, which are like, we have people who are living outside and they look kind of dirty and we don't like them. So we're just gonna kind of chronically sweep them along, like make, like take away all of their things so they don't look dirty anymore and then hope that they go someplace else. This is like a, an overarching tactic that's created. So when the inner, when the, when the dual, we had three different disasters overlap or not disasters. We had three different things over uh, happened within the city of Eugene, the pandemic hit and the city of Eugene didn't stop sweeping people in the face of a pandemic that was killing people internationally. They continued to enact sweeps on the houseless individuals, like 
deliberately putting them at risk. Then the uprisings happened. And by the uprisings, I mean the Black Lives Matter uprisings of 2020, which were revolutionary. And they set off police violence, particularly against unhoused individuals, like nothing we'd ever seen. Then we had a wildfire happen. This is all in one year cycle. We had a wildfire happen that destroyed, literally wiped two towns off the face of the earth and an additional 500 households were um, had no place to go. Um, and out of that, we very quickly, where we had been holding a clinic before we moved into providing direct street outreach, we put backpacks on and we went out and we found people in these little nooks and crannies. We started and we learned about police defense. We learned about eviction defense. We learned about harm reduction and keeping people safe inside their tents. We learned about ways to mitigate smoke and like it just took off and it became its whole other beast. And that's how Black Vessel Street Aid was born and has continued to run. We're only in Eugene, but we're part of a larger nationwide, international actually, wide network of activists that are trying to stop the genocide that is killing people who are forced out onto the street. In the United States, we lose over 10,000 people a year to houselessness. Uh, like they die from <laughs> issues related to houselessness. Um, and that though the population is overwhelmingly is by vast majority male identified individuals, the people who are femme identified on the street die disproportionately even there. And they're also, this is a whopper of a statistic, but over 90% of them report sexual assault at some point within the past five years. Access to reproductive care, access to STI care, access to all these things are all things we deal with on a daily basis. I, in the course of this condensed, what I feel like has been like boot camp for the long run of the end of our, like the, the late stage capitalism. I feel like I've been like in boot camp for the past three years of like, what is the work gonna continue to fucking look like? Um, I also suffered a miscarriage at 15 weeks and I needed care that intersected with the uh, the only care that I got was it was at home provision for myself I had community who were a bunch of radical fucking midwives and doulas and street medics who surrounded me and created a capsule so that I never went to the hospital I never went in I went for long-term care there was like you know some stuff going on it was the most radical act of magic that has ever happened to me to be able to give birth to my child that was also a death of my child with my partner at home surrounded by community. And to say, fuck you, to the obstetrician gynecologist. <laughs> You're not allowed to lay hands on me. I know who I am. I know what my power is. And I have witches around me that are willing to defend that that are willing to create space for me. I suffer from overextension constantly. The, the, the tactic of like how to avoid burnout, I have not learned, but I have 
been shown how if you do not protect yourself, how low the lows can go. I, we will never know why our miscarriage happened, but I know that I happened to fall pregnant at a moment where I was, had been chronically over-responding for like two and a half years. And I strongly suspect that the intersecting pressure of the stress and the, those systems took my child from me, is what I say to myself. The systems that asked me to show up and do this work when it should not have to be done, took my child from me. And I had to stop. And I had to take a long rest and a long look at myself and a long look at my own systems of care for myself. And I don't know that I, there are solutions. I don't know that there is a solution because we're gonna have to keep finding a way to keep getting back up every day. And we do, we always have. But the magic that I cast over myself in this time is to remind myself that to, is to remind myself that I that I am enough. I am, I'm enough for myself and I'm enough for my community, even if the work looks so insurmountable that I, it breaks my breaks breaks my breaks me all the way down. And I just have to do that every day. I just have to do that every day. I think part part of your aunt, thank you so much, first of all. Um, we around here are all about that vulnerability is strength life. And you have illustrated that beautifully for us today. And I think you answered the question in another way, which is to say for all of you who are listening, if you make community building part of your activism, if you center community building in your activism, then this can be the the urbarus that allows you to keep eating your own tail, you know, because you will get that that support as as part of your activism, not as an aside or something that happens separately, but as a part of it. You made me want to ask Ola Omi if if you are so bold as to tell us what radicalized you? <laughs> Life. <laughs> I was born in um, Columbia, Tennessee. And I'm a little black girl whose mother told her she was a witch when she was three. So it was, a, I couldn't be nothing but this. <laughs> I had, there was nowhere else to go. I tried. I was, I was the wonderful separate wife, housewife for about 10 years. And I, it was suicidal for me in literally. So this is, this is really all that I could be. But I think that For me, the moment of knowing has all knowing, you know, you have got to do this. You have got to fight this system. You have got to make this better was um, also, of course, a reproductive moment, which I think I guess it is for a lot of people with uteruses. So when my first when I was pregnant with my um, my eldest daughter, my first daughter, um, it, the healthcare system was horrible. Um, I was a poor black girl. I was 19. 
you know, I had gotten married, of course, because my mother had insisted and it was terrible. Everything was terrible. I was forced to do a whole bunch of things that I didn't want to do. I have a lot of allergies to a lot of things, but when you're a poor black girl, nobody believes you. When you say, I can't take that, I'm allergic to that. I'm gonna, you know, I may go into anaphylactic shock if you put that in my body. Nobody believed me. Nobody believed me. So I got a lot, had a lot of horrible experiences so that by the time that um, I pushed my daughter into this world, she wasn't breathing. And I myself was was barely there as well. And um, they wouldn't let me see her. They kept rushing her body all over the room. And she was on, she was some tiny thing, you know, and she, my body hadn't done a good job of creating something healthy and viable anyway, because I was in a hellish, stressful environment. And I prayed, did everything that I did while they were resuscitating her. And at some point she began to breathe. And it's at that moment that I knew, because you know, for a minute you believe the narrative. This is what mommy said, this is what grandma said. Surely this is true. And you saw them doing something different, but they kept telling you, you've got to do this though. My mother divorced when I was two, but she raised me to be a good wife. Why, why would you do that? <laughs> why would you think that was gonna work, mom? It didn't work for you. Why would, how? But that's what she raised me to be, right? And it was, you know, it was beat into you. This is what you shall be. But that point for me was the point that said, no, I think all of it is a lie. And I, I had, you know, you discern that part of it is a lie at some point. Once Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, you're like, okay, part of this shit is just a lie. Okay. But then you have those big moments and you're like, I think all of it might be a lie. And so you start kind of looking under the skirt of the culture and you're like, oh, okay, it's all a lie. So that was the big, huge turning point moment when I was like, okay, after this, I'm going to divorce this man. I'm not going back to church. I'm changing my name. I'm shaving my head. You know, the things that we do to reclaim this, this vessel that we live in. Changing my name. I'm shaving my head. I'm piercing my nose, right? And then... That's when I begin to remember. Mama said I was a witch at three, right? But by the time you shaved your head, you know, she ain't going to revisit that. She ain't gonna, <laughs> she's not going to tell you what she meant by that. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and can you talk a little bit about um, your perception of the history of gynecology and obstetrics? Yes. So I have to steal McKinsey's term here and make us very aware of the fact that healthcare in this country is a genocidal system by design, right? So there were three, maybe four Black women that were operated upon, um, no anesthesia. They were enslaved at the time. And this is how every gynecological um, medical procedure that we do now, that's how those were created. So that's the beginning of it. So when we think about that, you really have to decide because I decided like McKenzie, I, I just didn't go back to doctors after that. After you just almost killed me because you were giving me some shit I told you I couldn't take, I just didn't go back. But we have to all decide 
how deep into that system we're gonna go. Because we have to remember that it's genocidal by design, right? So those black women's, some of them, their lives were taken by those procedures. And of course, all of them were subjected to horrible trauma to create this system. And the point of the system was what? To take away the power from the midwives. My um, great grandmother was a granny midwife. She delivered most of the black people in the town where I'm from. And she delivered some of my older siblings. And when I think about the type of power she wielded in the community, that's what they wanted, right? So that's why they went and created this system because my, my great grandmother, everybody in the community called her big buddy, right? She was a tall, big woman and she was everybody's friend, right? She loved everybody, right? Now she wasn't nobody to play with, don't get her wrong. She's saying that in my ear, like don't have me characterized out here like I was soft. If she wasn't soft, y'all, she's saying it in my ear. But she was that big mama that delivered all of the children, knew the herbal cures, bought a house from the Confederates, y'all. Bought a house from the Confederates as a single black woman. And the house was huge. It was five bedrooms. The shit had a koi pond in front of it, right? So she was that woman, right? But that connection that witches have to the universe, that's what makes us that type of human being. And that to me is always the threat. So you have to create some horrible, terrible genocidal system to combat this. This can't be combated. We know that, right? Let, let us not sit here tonight and believe that our connection to the universe can be combated. You, you can't fight against that, right? So we're not gonna worry about that, but there has always been, that's part of the glamor is that you believe you fighting something that can't be fought. I was asked one time to be on a panel like this, but it was all men. And they said, we just wanna, want you to come in here so we can refute what you are saying. And I said, oh, was some of you all uh, born outside of a, a vagina? Did y'all come out of a vagina? Well, that ain't what we talking about. I said, well, that's all I'm saying is that y'all came out of a vagina. That's, all. <laughs> that's literally the point of what I'm saying is that you came out of a vagina. So there's nothing to refute, right? There's no combat. There's no combat. You can't combat the connection that we had, that, that we as witches, as the original wise ones, you can't combat the connection we have to the universe. But yeah, it's a genocidal system. Fuck it. Fuck everything it does. It's bullshit. Try your best to extricate yourself from it as much as you possibly can. And then we, as a collective, have to make sure we're always gathering information to help, right? Because how do we help our sisters that need hormone therapy if we don't know the herbs that give you a lot of estrogen? You know what I'm saying? So we have to be gathering information too, while we're combating it, so. Yes, one, one of our favorite sources of information, a book that we recommend probably like every third episode or something like that is uh, Midwives, Witches, Witches, Midwives, and Nurses by Deirdre English and Barbara Ironreich. Their contention is that 
Um, the witch hunt is related to the uh, professionalization of medicine. So when men only um, started training to be doctors so that they could profit off this training to be doctors, they had to erase the competition. And the competition was Olomi's grandmother. <laughs> the competition was Mackenzie. And so that had to be erased. So we are, we're dealing with patriarchy. We're dealing with capitalism. We're dealing with classism. We are dealing with every form of oppression in a Venn diagram. And we find ourselves at the very center. And what we can do is have conversations like this one. Once again, I really, I want to open up the floor to our guest guests. If you have a question for any of our panelists, you can raise your hand. If you have a compliment, you can also raise your hand and deliver a compliment. It doesn't have to be in the form of a question. But in the meantime, I really, again, I just, I'm, I'm so grateful that we have the freedom to have this conversation. I am so glad for the reminders that our panelists have brought to us that we are not disconnected as as much as you know the status quo might want us to feel disconnected because it is in their interest for us to be isolated and vulnerable in the bad way not vulnerable in the way where we can take strength from sharing our experiences with each other and our fears and I really feel like both of you specifically our panelists have helped me personally to come out of that, what do we call it? The, the adrenaline magic of, of fear and urgency and just recognizing that, you know, the pendulum has always swung. The pendulum will continue to swing and it's just up to us to see if we can nudge the swing so that it's not quite so the people who are listening can't see my hands but I'm swinging them wide and then I'm swinging them short and the short swing is the one we're looking at where we're not going so far to one side that people die and that is what's happening when we ignore people who are unhoused um you know I watched a short documentary about um homeless women having their period homeless femmes having their period and I had never thought about it before. This was my state of privilege where I had never even crossed my mind. Obviously, it, it's problematic and difficult and messy and painful. And if you don't have a situation where you can even wash yourself. And so, I mean, as tiny of an act as it was, Risa and I added a tampon drive to our Christmas party that year and then to like every halloween party and then, afterwards. <laughs> and, then, and then to all the shows we did for the next six years yeah, or whatever. because Pe we just hadn't thought about it before that people right? who bleed need our love and we are we are bound to those people yeah and i i, I want to agree with that that like there's 10 of us here and there's a couple thousand people that will hear this and each of you share it like build build community with one person like let one person hear Mackenzie's story and weep with her and hold that baby in their heart and let that baby's life be held and like 
let one person know Olomi's story and her activism and her three-year-old witch and celebrate her, like, like let's hold those stories for each other and tell one person they're not alone right now. So if our listeners want to support you in like a practical or even financial way, let's start with Mackenzie. How can our listeners support your endeavors or in a non-financial way, how can they lift you? I mean, lift me by lifting yourselves. I mean, certainly you're welcome to donate to Black Thistle if you want to. However, the crisis of houselessness, the crisis of pure access to healthcare is an epidemic across the United States. And I will tell you, we are not alone. And we, we are not singular by like Black Thistle Street Aid. There are so many fucking radical, there are so many radical projects happening you know, like, you know, I'm going to shout out decolonial or decolonized herbalism in Kentucky. You know, I'm going to shout out the canoe journey, the canoe journey herbalists up in the Salish Sea area, like farm to prison. I don't even know where they're at necessarily, but they do fucking rock work. Like if you are just starting, start to ask in your community and you will find them. Start asking your community and you will find them. If there is no one else, reach out to people that are like close to you, but not quite close enough and ask them for mentorship. They will give you all the shit. (laughs) They will be so excited um, to get you started. And don't assume, do not assume, take this away from this episode. Do not assume that even if you are starting a project and you feel by yourself, you're not by yourself, right? And you can't do it alone. It, it is actually essential to the project of liberation that we formed community, we formed community across communities as well as within our communities. Also, as radical we leftist herbalist like weirdos that we are, witches that we are, uh, don't hesitate to reach out and try to convert the establishment figures that are in your area. Black Thistle Street Aid works with doctors, we work with nurses, we work with EMTs. Sometimes they're a hard sell, and when you flip them, they will be such a hard ally. The main doctor we roll with right now is literally the chief of staff of an ED. And he's this older white guy who is always learning how to leverage his older white guyness and walks around with like flip-flops down these railroad tracks, like asking people if they want syringes now. That was a project of near a decade of us as activists, like you know, reeling him in, (laughs) showing him how herbs can be effective, showing him how these tactics can be effective, teaching, you know, having political conversations. So it's so, it's, (laughs) it's so hopeful what you said that a hard sell can turn into a hard ally. It doesn't have to be easy. Y'all, nobody said it was going to be easy, you know, that nobody told me that (laughs) it's not going to be fast. It's not going to be easy. But nothing precious was ever cheap, not in my life anyway. I want to encourage our listeners, if you haven't already, I've asked you to do this many, many times, but I want you to purchase the book Ona Agbani. It was revelatory for me. I learned so much. It really, uh, which is a book by, <laughs> excuse me, Hola Omi, under the name of Ayalosa Akalatunde. Um, it was foundational for me in my unlearning and unpacking of white supremacy. 
um, to see the beautiful complex nature of African traditions, cultures, um, and you know how how these came to play in America. Again, the name of the book is Ona Agbani. I really, really, really recommend it to everyone listening right now if you haven't already bought it. What's another way that our listeners can support you, Olomi? Um, my website does have a donate button, got to be oshun.org, G-O-T, the number two, the letter B, O-S-H-U-N.org. You can donate there. Um, for my content, I mostly do teach um, POC femme people. However, if you are not a POC femme person and you are in need of some magical assistance or some just some help and guidance along that journey, please reach out to me via email. The same, got to be Oshun at Gmail, G-O-T, the number two, the letter B-O-S-H-U-N. But that is how you can support me. Also, support yourself, love yourself, listen to yourself, exalt yourself, right? And remember, like Bob Marley said, if they are the big tree, we are the small acts. We are the thing that can cut them down, right? No worries. In the end, we win, right? We're the tarot readers. We know the future. In the end, we win. So no, no worries. You can't combat the connection we have to the universe. Though they may try and try and try and try, it, it will always surge and resurge and surge and resurge. Again, listeners, be angry. Do not be afraid. Stay angry, but do not be afraid. Build your communities. Even conversations like this one, again, let's invoke Dr. Beverly Smith one more time. A conversation can be a spell of protection. So again, I want to thank our our panelists. Everything we talked about will be in the show notes for this episode. Um, we want to wish everyone a happy Lamas. Lamas is the first harvest. And may we harvest. May we plant and nurture and seed and grow and then take the fruit and bite into it like the juicy peach that life fucking is. And I see Mackenzie is, is doing a mime of the peach juices just absolutely spilling down our bodies. And that's the moment that I want you to live in this Lamas. They cannot combat our connection to the universe. Thank you again so much. If anything has anyone has anything parting to say, I would love to hear. Can I can I give you a spell that I've been please um, do reciting to myself by one our you know all hail Ursula Le Guin. an excerpt from one of her from one of her poems. It's not the whole thing. Please look it up. But um, someone, a teacher of mine, actually, um, uh, Ilva Mara, a teacher of mine, shared this with me, and I've been reciting it to myself over and over again. So, please bring strange things. Let very old things come into your hands. May your mouth contain the shape of strange words. Walk fearlessly, well-loved one. Be always coming home. 
Thank you so much, Mackenzie and Ursula K. Le Guin and Olaomi Omoloku, also known as Ayalosa Alakunde, if you're looking for her books. Blessed fucking be. Happy Lamas. Stay in your body. Stay in your body. Thank yes. you so much for the opportunity. It was so great to what meet a- you all and to share this spell of protection with you. Yeah. Indeed. Yes. Thank you. And we are blessed and protected. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Bless if I can be. You must be a witch. Just a reminder that the Missing Witches podcast is entirely listener funded. If you love the project and want to support us and join in on conversations like this one live, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash missingwitches.